0: Chapter 41, Part 1 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 41 Conquests of Justinian in the West, Character and First Campaigns of Belisarius. He invades and subdues the Vandal Kingdom of Africa, His Triumph. The Gothic War. He recovers Sicily, Naples, and Rome. Siege of Rome by the Goths. Their retreat and losses. Surrender of Ravenna. Glory of Belisarius. His domestic shame and misfortunes. When Justinian ascended the throne, about fifty years after the fall of the Western Empire, the kingdoms of the Goths and Vandals had obtained a solid and, as it might seem, a legal establishment both in Europe and Africa. The titles which Roman victory had inscribed were erased with equal justice by the sword of the barbarians, and their successful rapine derived a more venerable sanction from time, from treaties, and from the oaths of fidelity already repeated by a second or third generation of obedient subjects. Experience and Christianity have refuted the superstitious hope that Rome was founded by the gods to reign forever over the nations of the earth. But the proud claim of perpetual and indefeasible dominion, which her soldiers could no longer maintain, was firmly asserted by her statesmen and lawyers, whose opinions have been sometimes revived and propagated in the modern schools of jurisprudence. After Rome herself had been stripped of the imperial purple, the princes of Constantinople assumed the sole and sacred scepter of the monarchy demanded, as the rightful inheritance, the provinces which had been subdued by the consuls or possessed by the Caesars, and feebly aspired to deliver their faithful subjects of the West from the usurpation of heretics and barbarians. The execution of this splendid design was in some degree reserved for Justinian. During the first five years of his reign, he reluctantly waged a costly and unprofitable war against the Persians, till his pride submitted to his ambition and he purchased, at the price of four hundred and forty thousand pounds sterling, the benefit of a precarious truce, which, in the language of both nations, was dignified with the appellation of the Endless Peace. The safety of the East enabled the Emperor to deploy his forces against the Vandals, and the internal state of Africa afforded an honorable motive and promised a powerful support to the Roman arms. According to the testament of the founder, the African kingdom had lineally descended to Hilderic, the eldest of the Vandal princes. A mild disposition inclined the son of a tyrant, the grandson of a conqueror, to prefer the counsels of clemency and peace, and his accession was marked by the salutary edict which restored the two hundred bishops to their churches, and allowed the free profession of the Anastasian creed but the Catholics accepted with cold and transient gratitude a favor so inadequate to their pretensions, and the virtues of Hilderic offended the prejudices of his countrymen. The Arian clergy presumed to insinuate that he had renounced the faith, and the soldiers more loudly complained that he had degenerated from the courage of his ancestors. His ambassadors were suspected of a secret and disgraceful negotiation in the Byzantine court, and his general, the Achilles, as he was named, of the Vandals, lost a battle against the naked and disorderly moors. The public discontent was exasperated by Gelimer, whose age, descent, and military fame gave him an apparent title to the secession. He assumed, with the consent of the nation, the reins of government, and his unfortunate sovereign sunk without a struggle, from the throne to a dungeon, where he was strictly guarded with a faithful counselor, and his unpopular nephew, the Achilles of the Vandals. But the indulgence which Hilderic had shown to his Catholic subjects had powerfully recommended him to the favor of Justinian, who, for the benefit of his own sect, could acknowledge the use and justice of religious toleration. Their alliance, while the nephew of Justin remained in a private station, was cemented by the mutual exchange of gifts and letters, and the emperor Justinian asserted the cause of royalty and friendship. In two successive embassies he admonished the usurper to repent of his treason, or to abstain, at least, from any further violence which might provoke the displeasure of God, and of the Romans, to reverence the laws of kindred and secession, and to suffer an infirm old man peacefully to end his days, either on the throne of Carthage, or in the palace of Constantinople. The passions, or even the prudence of Gelimer, compelled him to reject these requests, which were urged in the haughty tone of menace and command, And he justified his ambition in a language rarely spoken in the Byzantine court, by alleging the right of a free people to remove or punish their chief magistrate, who had failed in the execution of the kingly office. After this fruitless expostulation, the captive monarch was more rigorously treated, his nephew was deprived of his eyes, and the cruel vandal, confident in his strength and distance, derided the vain threats and slow preparations of the emperor of the east. Justinian resolved to deliver or to revenge his friend, Gelimer to maintain his usurpation, and the war was preceded, according to the practice of civilized nations, by the most solemn protestations that each party was sincerely desirous of peace. The report of an African war was grateful only to the vain and idle populace of Constantinople, whose poverty exempted them from tribute, and whose cowardice was seldom exposed to military service but the wiser citizens, who judged of the future by the past, revolved in their memory the immense loss, both of men and money, which the empire had sustained in the expedition of Basilicus. The troops, which, after five laborious campaigns, had been recalled from the Persian frontier, dreaded the sea, the climate, and the arms of an unknown enemy. The ministers of the finances computed, as far as they might compute, the demands of an African war the taxes which must be found and levied to supply those insatiate demands, and the danger lest their own lives, or at least their lucrative employments, should be made responsible for the deficiency of the supply. Inspired by such selfish motives, for we may not suspect him of any zeal for the public good, John of Cappadocia ventured to oppose in full counsel the inclinations of his master. He confessed that a victory of such importance could not be too dearly purchased, but he represented, in a grave discourse, the certain difficulties and the uncertain event. You undertake, said the prefect, to besiege Carthage, by land, the distance is not less than 140 days' journey. On the sea, a whole year must elapse before you can receive any intelligence from your fleet. If Africa should be reduced, it cannot be preserved without the additional conquest of Sicily and Italy. Success will impose the obligation of new labors, a single misfortune will attract the barbarians into the heart of your exhausted empire. Justinian felt the weight of his salutary advice. He was confounded by the unwanted freedom of an obsequious servant, and the design of the war would perhaps have been relinquished if his courage had not been revived by a voice which silenced the doubts of profane reason. "'I have seen a vision,' cried an artful or fanatic bishop of the East. "'It is the will of heaven, O Emperor,' that you should not abandon your holy enterprise for the deliverance of the African church. The god of battles will march before your standard, and disperse your enemies, who are the enemies of his son. The emperor might be tempted, and his counselors were constrained, to give credit to this seasonable revelation. But they derived more rational hope from the revolt which the adherents of Hilderic or Athanasius had already excited on the borders of the Vandal monarchy. Pudentius, an African subject, had privately signified his loyal intentions, and a small military aid restored the province of Tripoli to the obedience of the Romans. The government of Sardinia had been entrusted to Godas, a valiant barbarian. He suspended the payment of tribute, disclaimed his allegiance to the usurper, and gave audience to the emissaries of Justinian, who found him master of that fruitful island, at the head of his guards, and proudly invested with the ensigns of royalty the forces of the Vandals were diminished by discord and suspicion. The Roman armies were animated by the spirit of Belisarius, one of those heroic names which are familiar to every age and to every nation. The Africanus of New Rome was born, and perhaps educated, among the Thracian peasants, without any of those advantages which had formed the virtues of the elder and younger Scipio. A noble origin, liberal studies, and the emulation of a free state. The silence of a loquacious secretary may be admitted to prove that the youth of Belisarius could not afford any subject of praise. He served, most assuredly with valor and reputation, among the private guards of Justinian, and when his patron became emperor, the domestic was promoted to military command. After a bold inroad into Persarmenia, in which his glory was shared by a colleague, and his progress was checked by an enemy, Belisarius repaired to the important station of Dara, where he first accepted the service of Procopius, the faithful companion and diligent historian of his exploits. The Myrones of Persia advanced with forty thousand of her best troops to raise the fortifications of Dara, and signified the day and the hour on which the citizens should prepare a bath for his refreshment after the toils of victory he encountered an adversary equal to himself, by the new title of General of the East, his superior in the science of war, but much inferior in the number and quality of his troops, which amounted to only 25,000 Romans and strangers, relaxed in their discipline, and humbled by recent disasters. As the level plain of Dara refused all shelter to stratagem and ambush, Belisarius protected his front with a deep trench, which was prolonged at first in perpendicular, and afterwards in parallel lines, to cover the wings of cavalry advantageously posted to command the flanks and rear of the enemy. When the Roman center was shaken, their well-timed and rapid charge decided the conflict. The standard of Persia fell, the immortals fled, the infantry threw away their bucklers, and 8,000 of the vanquished were left on the field of battle. In the next campaign, Syria was invaded on the side of the desert and Belisarius, with twenty thousand men, hastened from Dara to the relief of the province. During the whole summer the designs of the enemy were baffled by his skillful dispositions. He pressed their retreat, occupied each night their camp of the preceding day, and would have secured a bloodless victory if he could have resisted the impatience of his own troops. Their valiant promise was faintly supported in the hour of battle, The right wing was exposed by the treacherous or cowardly desertion of the Christian Arabs. The Huns, a veteran band of 8,000 warriors, were oppressed by superior numbers. The flight of the Osorians was intercepted. But the Roman infantry stood firm on the left, for Belisarius himself, dismounting from his horse, showed them that intrepid despair was their only safety. They turned their backs to the Euphrates, and their faces to the enemies. Innumerable arrows glanced without effect from the compact and surviving order of their bucklers, an impenetrable line of pikes was opposed to the repeated assaults of the Persian cavalry, and after resistance of many hours, the remaining troops were skillfully embarked under the shadow of the night. The Persian commander retired with disorder and disgrace, to answer a strict account of the lives of so many soldiers, which he had consumed in a barren victory but the fame of Belisarius was not sullied by a defeat in which he alone had saved his army from the consequences of their own rashness. The approach of peace relieved him from the guard of the eastern frontier, and his conduct in the sedition of Constantinople amply discharged his obligations to the emperor. When the African war became the topic of popular discourse and secret deliberation, each of the Roman generals was apprehensive rather than ambitious of the dangerous honor But as soon as Justinian had declared his preference of superior merit, their envy was rekindled by the unanimous applause which was given to the choice of Belisarius. The temper of the Byzantine court may encourage a suspicion that the hero was darkly assisted by the intrigues of his wife, the fair and subtle Antonina, who alternately enjoyed the confidence and incurred the hatred of the empress Theodora. The birth of Antonina was ignoble. She descended from a family of charioteers, and her chastity has been stained by the foulest reproach. Yet she reigned with long and absolute power over the mind of her illustrious husband, and if Antonina disdained the merit of conjugal fidelity, she expressed a manly friendship to Belisarius, whom she accompanied with undaunted resolution in all the hardships and dangers of a military life. The preparations of the African war were not unworthy of the last contest between Rome and Carthage, The pride and flower of the army consisted of the guards of Belisarius, who, according to the pernicious indulgence of the times, devoted themselves, by a particular oath of fidelity, to the service of their patrons. Their strength and stature, for which they had been curiously selected, the goodness of their horses and armor, and the assiduous practice of all the exercises of war, enabled them to act whenever their courage might prompt, and their courage was exalted by the social honor of their rank and the personal ambition of favor and fortune. Four hundred of the bravest of the Heruli marched under the banner of the faithful and active Pharis. Their untractable valor was more highly prized than the tame submission of the Greeks and Syrians, and of such importance was it deemed to procure a reinforcement of six hundred Massagetae or Huns, that they were allured by fraud and deceit to engage in a naval expedition." 5,000 horse and 10,000 foot were embarked at Constantinople for the conquest of Africa. But the infantry, for the most part levied in Thrace and Isoria, yielded to the more prevailing use and reputation of the cavalry, and the Scythian bow was the weapon, on which the armies of Rome were now reduced to place their principal dependence. From a laudable desire to assert the dignity of his theme, Procopius defends the soldiers of his own time against the morose critics— who confined that respectable name to the heavily-armed warriors of antiquity, and maliciously observed that the word archer is introduced by Homer as a term of contempt. Such contempt might perhaps be due to the naked youths who appeared on foot in the fields of Troy, and, lurking behind a tombstone or a shield of a friend, drew the bowstring to their breast, and dismissed a feeble and lifeless arrow. But our archers, pursues the historian, are mounted on horses, which they manage with admirable skill. Their head and shoulders are protected by a casque or buckler. They wear greaves of iron on their legs, and their bodies are guarded by a coat of mail. On their right side hangs a quiver, a sword in their left, and their hand is accustomed to wield a lance or a javelin in closer combat. Their bows are strong and weighty. They shoot in every possible direction, advancing, retreating to the front, to the rear, or to either flank. And as they are taught to draw the bowstring, not to their breast, but to the right ear, firm indeed must be the armor that can resist the rapid violence of their shaft. Five hundred transports, navigated by twenty thousand mariners of Egypt, Cilicia, and Ionia, were collected in the harbor of Constantinople. The smallest of these vessels may be computed at thirty, the largest at five hundred tons. And the fair average will supply an allowance, liberal but not profuse, of about one hundred thousand tons. For the reception of thirty-five thousand soldiers and sailors, of five thousand horses, of arms, engines, and military stores, and of a sufficient stock of water and provisions for a voyage, perhaps, of three months. The proud galleys, which in former ages swept the Mediterranean with so many hundred oars, had long since disappeared, and the fleet of Justinian was escorted only by ninety-two light brigantines, covered from the missile weapons of the enemy and rode by two thousand of the brave and robust youth of Constantinople. Twenty-two generals are named, most of whom were afterwards distinguished in the wars of Africa and Italy, but the supreme command, both by land and sea, was delegated to Belisarius alone, with the boundless power of acting, according to his discretion, as if the emperor himself were present. The separation of the naval and military professions is at once the effect and cause of the modern improvements, in the science of navigation, and maritime war. In the seventh year of the reign of Justinian, and about the time of the summer solstice, the whole fleet of six hundred ships was ranged in martial pomp before the gardens of the palace. The patriarch pronounced his benediction, the emperor signified his last commands, the general's trumpet gave the signal of departure, and every heart, according to its fears or wishes, explored with anxious curiosity the omens of misfortune and success. The first halt was made at Perinthus, or Heraclea, where Belisarius waited five days to receive some Thracian horses, a military gift of his sovereign. From thence the fleet pursued their course through the mists of the Propontis, but as they struggled to pass the straits of the Hellespont, an unfavorable wind detained them four days at Abydus where the general exhibited a memorable lesson of firmness and severity. Two of the Huns, who, in a drunken quarrel, had slain one of their fellow soldiers, were instantly shown to the army, suspended on a lofty gibbet. The national indignity was presented by their countrymen, who disclaimed the servile laws of the empire, and asserted the free privilege of Scythia, where a small fine was allowed to expiate the hasty sallies of intemperance and anger. Their complaints were specious, their clamors were loud, and the Romans were not adverse to the example of disorder and impunity. But the rising sedition was appeased by the authority and eloquence of the general, and he represented to the assembled troops the obligation of justice, the importance of discipline, the rewards of piety and virtue, and the unpardonable guilt of murder, which, in his apprehension, was aggravated rather than excused by the vice of intoxication. In the navigation from the Hellespont to Peloponnesus, which the Greeks, after the siege of Troy, had performed in four days. The fleet of Belisarius was guided in their course by his master galley, conspicuous in the day by the redness of the sails, and in the night by the torches blazing from the masthead. It was the duty of the pilots, as they steered between the islands, and turned the capes, Malea and Tenarium, to preserve the just order and regular intervals of such a multitude of ships. As the wind was fair and moderate, their labors were not unsuccessful and the troops were safely disembarked at Methone, on the Messinian coast to repose themselves for a while after the fatigues of the sea. In this place they experienced how avarice, invested with authority, might sport with the lives of thousands which are bravely exposed for the public service. According to the military practice, the bread, or biscuit of the Romans, was twice prepared in the oven, and the diminution of one-fourth was cheerfully allowed for the loss of weight. To gain this miserable profit, and to save the expense of wood, the praefect John of Cappadocia had given orders that the flour should be slightly baked by the same flour which had warmed the baths of Constantinople, and when the sacks were opened, a soft and moldy paste was distributed to the army. Such unwholesome food, assisted by the heat of the climate and season, soon produced an epidemical disease which swept away five hundred soldiers. Their health was restored by the diligence of Belisarius, who provided fresh bread at Methone, and boldly expressed his just and humane indignation. The emperor heard his complaint. The general was praised, but the minister was not punished. From the port of Methone, the pilots steered along the western coast of Peloponnesus, as far as the isle of Zaxinthus, or Zante, before they undertook the voyage, in their eyes a most arduous voyage of one hundred leagues over the Ionian Sea. As the fleet was surprised by a calm, sixteen days were consumed in the slow navigation, and even the general would have suffered the intolerable hardship of thirst if the ingenuity of Antonina had not preserved the water in glass bottles, which she buried deep in the sand, in a part of the ship impervious to the rays of the sun. At length the harbor of Calcana, on the southern side of sicily afforded a secure and hospitable shelter the gothic officers who governed the island in the name of the daughter and grandson of theodoric obeyed their imprudent orders to receive the troops of justinian like friends and allies provisions were liberally supplied the cavalry was remounted and procopius soon returned from syracuse with correct information of the state and designs of the vandals his intelligence determined belisarius to hasten his operations and his wise impatience was seconded by the winds. The fleet lost sight of Sicily, passed before the Isle of Malta, discovered the Capes of Africa, ran along the coast with a strong gale from the northeast, and finally cast anchor at the promontory of Caput Vada, about five days' journey to the south of Carthage. If Gelimer had been informed of the approach of the enemy, he must have delayed the conquest of Sardinia by the immediate defense of his person and kingdom. A detachment of five thousand soldiers and one hundred and twenty galleys would have joined the remaining forces of the Vandals, and the descendant of Genseric might have surprised and oppressed a fleet of deep-laden transports incapable of action, and of light brigantines that seemed only qualified for flight. Belisarius had secretly trembled when he overheard his soldiers in the passage, emboldening each other to confess their apprehensions. If they were once on shore, They hoped to maintain the honor of their arms, but if they should be attacked at sea, they did not blush to acknowledge that they wanted courage to contend at the same time with the wind, the waves, and the barbarians. The knowledge of their sentiments decided Belisarius to seize the first opportunity of landing them on the coast of Africa, and he prudently rejected, in a council of war, the proposal of sailing with the fleet and army into the port of Carthage. Three months after the departure from Constantinople, the men's and horses, the arms and military stores, were safely disembarked, and five soldiers were left as a guard on board of each of the ships, which were disposed in the form of a semicircle. The remainder of the troops occupied a camp on the seashore, which they fortified, according to ancient discipline, with a ditch and rampart, and the discovery of a source of fresh water, while it allayed the thirst, excited the superstitious confidence of the Romans. The next morning, some of the neighboring gardens were pillaged, and Belisarius, after chastising the offenders, embraced the slight occasion, but the decisive moment of inculcating the maximus of justice, moderation, and genuine policy. When I first accepted the commission of subduing Africa, I depended much less, said the general, on the numbers, or even the bravery of my troops, than upon the friendly disposition of the natives, and their immortal hatred of the vandals. You alone can deprive me of this hope. If you continue to extort by rapine, which might be purchased for a little money, such acts of violence will reconcile these implacable enemies, and unite them in a just and holy league against the invaders of their country. These exhortations were enforced by a rigid discipline, of which the soldiers themselves soon felt and praised the salutary effects. The inhabitants, instead of deserting their houses or hiding their corn, supplied the Romans with a fair and liberal market, the civil officers of the province continued to exercise their functions in the name of Justinian, and the clergy, from motives of conscience and interest, assiduously labored to promote the cause of a Catholic emperor. The small town of Sulecte, one day's journey from the camp, had the honor of being foremost to open her gates and to resume her ancient allegiance. The larger cities of Leptis and Adrumetum imitated the example of loyalty as soon as Belisarius appeared, and he advanced without opposition as far as Grace, a palace of the Vandal kings at a distance of fifty miles from Carthage. The weary Romans indulged themselves in the refreshment of shady groves, cool fountains, and delicious fruits, and the preference which Procopius allows to these gardens over any that he had seen, either in the east or west, may be ascribed either to the taste or the fatigue of the historian. In three generations, prosperity and a warm climate had dissolved the hardy virtue of the vandals, who insensibly became the most luxurious of mankind. In their villas and gardens, which might deserve the Persian name of paradise, they enjoyed a cool and elegant repose, and, after the daily use of the bath, Barbarians were seated at a table profusely spread with the delicacies of the land and sea. Their silken robes, loosely flowing after the fashion of the Medes, were embroidered with gold. Love and hunting were the labors of their life, and their vacant hours were amused by pantomimes, chariot races, and the music and dances of the theatre. In a march of ten or twelve days, the vigilance of Belisarius was constantly awake, and active against his unseen enemies, by whom, in every place and at every hour, he might be suddenly attacked. An officer of confidence and merit, John the Armenian, led the vanguard of three hundred horse, six hundred massageti covered, at a certain distance, the left flank, and the whole fleet, steering along the coast, seldom lost sight of the army, which moved every day about twelve miles, and lodged in the evening in strong camps or in friendly towns. The near approach of the Romans to Carthage filled the mind of Gelimer with anxiety and terror. He prudently wished to protract the war till his brother, with his veteran troops, should return from the conquest of Sardinia, and he now lamented the rash policy of his ancestors, who, by destroying the fortifications of Africa, had left him only the dangerous resource of risking a battle in the neighborhood of his capital. The Vandal conquerors, from their original number of fifty thousand, were multiplied without including their women and children, to one hundred and sixty thousand fighting men. And such forces, animated with valor and union, might have crushed at their first landing the feeble and exhausted bands of the Roman general. But the friends of the captive king were more inclined to accept the invitations than to resist the progress of Belisarius, and many a proud barbarian disguised his aversion to war under the more specious name of his hatred to the usurper. Yet the authority and promises of Gelimer collected a formidable army, and his plans were concerted with some degree of military skill. An order was dispatched to his brother, Amatus to collect all the forces of Carthage, and to encounter the van of the Roman army, at the distance of ten miles from the city. His nephew, Gibamund, with two thousand horse, was destined to attack their left, when the monarch himself, who silently followed, should charge their rear in a situation which excluded them from the aid, or even the view of their fleet. But the rashness of Amatus was fatal to himself and his country. He anticipated the hour of the attack, outstripped his tardy followers, and was pierced with a mortal wound after he had slain with his own hand twelve of his boldest antagonists. His vandals fled to Carthage. The highway, almost ten miles, was strewed with dead bodies, and it seemed incredible that such multitudes could be slaughtered by the swords of three hundred Romans. The nephew of Gelimer was defeated, after a slight combat, by the six hundred Massageti. They did not equal the third part of his numbers, but each Scythian was fired by the example of his chief, who gloriously exercised the privilege of his family, by riding foremost and alone to shoot the first arrow against the enemy. In the meanwhile, Gelimer himself, ignorant of the event and misguided by the windings of the hills, inadvertently passed the Roman army, and reached the scene of action where Amatus had fallen. He wept the fate of his brother, and of Carthage, charged with irresistible fury the advancing squadrons, and might have pursued, and perhaps decided the victory, if he had not wasted those inestimable moments, in the discharge of a vain, though pious, duty to the dead. While his spirit was broken by this mournful office, he heard the trumpet of Belisarius, who, leaving Antonina and his infantry in the camp, pressed forward with his guards, and the remainder of the cavalry, to rally his flying troops, and to restore the fortune of the day. Much room could not be found in this disorderly battle for the talents of a general, but the king fled before the hero, and the vandals, accustomed only to a Moorish enemy, were incapable of withstanding the arms and discipline of the Romans. Gelimer retired with hasty steps toward the desert of Numidia, but he had soon the consolation of learning that his private orders for the execution of Hilderick and his captive friends had been faithfully obeyed. The tyrant's revenge was useful only to his enemies. The death of a lawful prince excited the compassion of his people. His life, might have perplexed the victorious Romans, and the lieutenant of Justinian, by a crime of which he was innocent, was relieved from the painful alternative of forfeiting his honor or relinquishing his conquests. End of chapter 41, part 1